Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 55, Fab 4, in which we turn to the beginnings of materials chemistry. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. American chemist and mineralogist Albert Foote found in 1891 in what was then called Franklin's Hole or Coon Butte in Arizona meteorite fragments. Foote called the meteorite bits Canyon Diablo from a local post office and canyon. We now call the site Meteor Crater, one of the best-known craters surviving on Earth from a meteor impact. Tiny diamonds were discovered in the meteorite samples. We recall French chemist Henri Moisson, who was able to isolate that nasty and reactive diatomic gas, fluorine, back in 1886. He later won a Nobel Prize for his work. Moisson got the idea that if diamonds could be formed under the immense temperatures at meteor impact, he could do the same in a laboratory. All he needed to do was take charcoal, which is carbon, and heat the carbon atoms, forcing them to rearrange into the crystal we call diamond, which Lavoisier knew over a century earlier to be carbon as well. So Moisson dissolved charcoal into liquid iron metal and let the carbon crystallize or precipitate out, if you like. In 1893, he thought he had succeeded, finding a few impure small diamonds with a bit of high-quality diamond in the cooled mixture. However, it seems a well-meaning assistant spiked his experiments with diamonds beforehand and skewed Moisson's results. Current knowledge of chemistry tells us that Moisson could never have succeeded under his laboratory conditions. But that year, Moisson was also examining some Diablo Canyon meteorite fragments and discovered a new mineral, first thinking it was diamond, but later determining it was silicon carbide, SIC. He published his results in 1905 as Nouvelle Recherche sur la Météorite de Canyon Diablo. Within a couple of years, the mineral was named Moissonite. But Moisson didn't discover silicon carbide itself, only the naturally occurring mineral. The honor happened in 1893 by Edward Acheson, and silicon carbide was already being used as an abrasive called carborundum by the time Moisson found his mineral. Soon after this, an American physicist, Percy Bridgman, started improvements to high-pressure apparatus, eventually increasing possible pressures in his system up to 100,000 atmospheres pressure. But he was still unable to synthesize diamonds, though he did earn himself a 1946 Nobel Prize in physics in the process. World War II like wars in general, shocked people and corporations into unusual action. In this case, industrial cutting tools were difficult to fabricate because they needed diamond tips, 
and the diamond supply chain was crimped, so companies began considering other ways to get or even synthesize diamonds. Among them was the General Electric Company, which founded a secret research project called Project Superpressure after World War II, with an engineer named Anthony Nerad as the manager. GE then moved a recently hired American chemist, Tracy Hall, to this scheme. There were years of failed experiments, which made the management upset and itching to move forward somehow. Hall finally took Bridgman's method. Redesigned the apparatus and made new guesses as to reagents, catalysts, and sample conditions. Ultimately, the apparatus needed 100,000 atmospheres of pressure, a starting material of iron sulfide and powdered carbon, electrically heated by tantalum metal discs at a temperature of 1,600 degrees Celsius. After 38 minutes of this brutality. He broke open the sample and found a group of diamond crystals. It seems that the tantalum heaters acted as a catalyst for the reaction. This took place in 1954. The diamond-making scheme was a huge success for General Electric, and Hall received a $10 savings bond in gratitude. <laughs> I should add that these heat and pressure-created diamonds were not jewelry-grade. But industrial grade, but they were diamonds nonetheless, and served their purpose. One other person I should mention who was working on synthesizing diamonds at this time for the Union Carbide Corporation was William Eversole. He used an entirely different method, and it didn't publish his results until 1962. So we will come back to his work later, perhaps with reference to surface chemistry. Now that we've talked about carbon as diamonds as a material for practical use, let's move down the periodic table one square to the element silicon. While we mentioned silicone polymers, this time we refer solely to the element, which has some unusual properties when compared to insulators and metallic conductors of electricity. Michael Faraday, the electrochemist and lecturer demonstrator. Reported an unusual electrical effect when studying silver sulfide crystals. Yes, it's not silicon, but the situation applies to silicon as well. What he found in 1833 was that heating up the crystals increased their electrical conduction, which is opposite of metals. In the early 19th century, how electricity worked was not at all obvious. So scientists chalked Faraday's semiconductor effect up to unexplainable phenomena. Willoughby Smith in 1873 saw a photoconductivity effect when working with selenium resistors. Why did he care? He was an engineer working on undersea telegraph cables and was trying to simulate the resistance of an extremely long cable. As he covered and uncovered selenium bars to light, their conductivity changed drastically. Light lowered their electrical resistance. He did, however, miss the temperature effect Faraday saw, which would have screwed up his measurements significantly. 
Another important aspect of semiconductors is photovoltaic effects. That is not just changing conductivity, but generating actual electricity when light is hitting the material. William Adams and Richard Day used samples of selenium and saw deflections of a galvanometer when the selenium was exposed to a candle. They saw this in 1873. The first working solar cell, a thin layer of selenium coated with a thin film of gold, was built by Charles Fritz in 1883. Again, not silicon, but applicable. The young German physicist Ferdinand Braun was researching a hot topic of the 1870s: electrolytes and electrical conduction. In 1874, one of the samples he tested was lead sulfide, mineralogically called galena. He stuck a metal wire onto the galena and found that electricity would travel only in one direction. He found this effect on a variety of other metal sulfide crystals. He showed this weirdness at a lecture in 1876, and no one could figure out what value this might have. Also in 1874, Arthur Schuster noted a similar effect, but this time with a circuit of copper wires connected by screws. Dirty tarnished terminals had a one-directional effect, but cleaning the wires stopped the phenomenon. So somehow it was related to copper oxide that appeared over time. Schuster called it unilateral conductivity. Again, this isn't silicon, but the observation applies. We advance finally to the 20th century to 1901. Indian professor of physics Yagdish Chandra Bose found that Brown's one-way electrical current valve had a use to detect millimeter-long electromagnetic waves or photons. Which we might call extremely high-frequency radio waves. That is, a pointy wire resting on a particular area of galena crystal generates an appropriate electrical signal that you can measure. We call this a rectifier, for it converts alternating radio wave signals into direct current electrical signals. Once again, it's not silicon, but we're getting close now. Bose patented his method in 1901. The first patent for a semiconductor-based device. The American electrical engineer Greenleaf Picard used Bose's observation to search for other minerals that might also have this radio signal detection property in the years 1902 to 1906. Some of the highest quality radio detectors turned out to be, you guessed it, silicon. So he patented his. Means for receiving intelligent communication by electric waves in 1906. Picard then founded the Wireless Specialty Apparatus Company to build and sell these detectors. Because they used a very fine wire poking at a small crystal of silicon, they came to be called cat's whisker crystal radio detectors. If you ever had a kit to build a crystal radio, this is the principle. Wireless Specialty was likely the first firm to build and market semiconductor apparatus. I should note that silicon and galena are not the only crystalline chemicals one can use to detect radio waves. There was a silicon carbide detector also patented two weeks after Picard, and others used zincite. 
there is one more property we need to include: electroluminescence. Marconi's Wireless Telegraph Company, an early player in the history of radio, hired Englishman Henry Round as a researcher. Round was looking at silicon carbide detectors. If he applied from 10 to 110 volts to these detectors, he noted that they glowed orange, yellow, green, or blue. He described it thusly in 1907 in the journal Electrical World. We'll be right back. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior. With your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. On applying a potential of 10 volts between two points on a crystal of carborundum, the crystal gave out a yellowish light. Only one of two specimens could be found which gave a bright glow on such low voltage, but with 110 volts, a large number could be found to glow. In some crystals, only edges gave the light, and others gave instead of a yellow light green, orange, or blue. In all cases tested, the glow appears to come from the negative pole, a bright blue green spark appearing at the positive pole. In a single crystal, if contact is made near the center with the negative pole, and the positive pole is put in contact at any other place, only one section of the crystal will glow, and that same section wherever the positive pole is placed. I want to add an element if we temporarily go down yet another square in the periodic table to germanium, now two squares underneath carbon. Swedish physicist Carl Benedix found in 1915 that germanium's conductivity was between silicon and the next element below, tin. By 1925, Ernest Merritt reported in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. That germanium's rectifying ability was similar to silicon, confirming that it too is a semiconductor. So now we know that both germanium and silicon are semiconductors. So let's move back up to silicon. Still, no one had a good idea why these semiconductors, silicon and germanium included, acted with all these strange phenomena. Semiconductor rectifiers became fairly common in electronics. And cat's whisker rectifiers were the radio signal detector of choice up to around 1920. And then came quantum mechanics. The English physicist Alan Wilson was working at Werner Heisenberg's lab in Germany in 1931. And used the quantum theory of solids under development there to explain semiconductor behavior. Here is how he explains some of the weirdness of semiconductors. Let's imagine that we merge a whole bunch, as in billions and billions, 
of silicon atoms together into a solid. All of those electrons have orbitals, which, now merged, become molecular orbitals around the entire solid. They cannot all be exactly the same energy level. Only two electrons can be in the same orbital. So they readjust into bands of energy rather than individual orbitals. For semiconductors, there is a noticeable energy gap between one full electron band and another empty electron band. Suddenly, much of semiconductors' behavior was understandable. If you shine light on the material, you can give electrons energy to jump from the full band up to the empty band and conduct. If you heat the material, you can give electrons energy to jump up from the full band to the empty band and conduct. This explained the curious temperature effects of conductivity. But what about the glowing and photoelectric effects? At this time, no one had produced really pure semiconductors, and ascribed much of their bizarre behavior to vague impurities. Vacuum tube electronics was beginning to be commercialized in the 1920s, but even so, Bell Telephone Laboratories wanted the best semiconductor detectors, and hired electrochemist Russell Ohl in 1927. Through the 1930s, he researched cat's whisker detectors, eventually toward use as radar detectors, and came to see that the finickiness of getting such a detector to work. Was because of the low quality of the semiconductor, generally about two percent impure, which gets back to the impurities question. So he experimented with growing purer and purer silicon to test his results. In February 1940, Ohl experimented with a polycrystalline silicon sample and found that, under bright light, its conduction increased. He also found that different areas of the sample. When tested with a cat's whisker point, gave opposite electrical effects. He marked out the areas and discovered slight impurities varying with the region. Recall that silicon, like carbon, has four electrons in its outer shell. One area of the silicon sample had a slight excess of phosphorus impurity, with extra electrons available because of phosphorus's five electrons in the outer shell. Another area had a slight excess of boron, which had fewer electrons—only three electrons in the outer shell. The phosphorus area was called negative for the extra electrons, or n-type, and boron area was called positive for lack of electrons, or p-type. Where the two regions meet, there was a p-n junction, where the light caused current to flow from the n-type to the p-type. This was the photovoltaic effect. We now call this process doping the semiconductor with a tiny amount of another element to give it appropriate amounts of electrons in the higher conducting orbital band, or to remove electrons from the lower band. Such phenomena were explained by the 1938 paper by Soviet physicist Boris Davidov, who worked out the scheme for copper oxide semiconduction. And these minority elements, or even holes, where electrons are lacking to carry current. Ultimately, the results led at Bell Laboratories soon after World War II 
to a solid-state equivalent of vacuum tubes, the transistor. In late December 1947, a team built a prototype amplifying device directly on a slab of n-type germanium. That is, with dopant causing extra electrons in the upper band. Two very closely spaced spring-loaded gold contacts touched the germanium. Now, put a weak electrical signal to be amplified, like from a radio's antenna, onto one of these gold contacts. The signal removes electrons from the conduction orbital band of the germanium, or you can view it if you like that this signal injects holes. Which are places lacking electrons into the germanium right around that contact. Put a positive current to the other gold contact. A small change in radio signal makes a larger proportional change in the second gold contact's voltage. The system amplifies the signal. This was the first solid-state point contact semiconductor triode, which, if a bit rickety, did work. It functionally was a substitute for a triode vacuum tube. The name for the new invention was held by internal ballot at Bell Labs. Among possible names besides semiconductor triode were surface states triode, crystal triode, solid triode, and iotatron. The winning name, though, was transistor, invented by engineer and science fiction writer John Pierce. He said that the word transistor was quote, "supposed to be the dual of the vacuum tube. The vacuum tube had transconductance, so the transistor would have trans resistance, and the name should fit in with names of other devices such as varistor and thermistor. And I suggested the name transistor." Unquote. The first commercial transistor factory began producing them in 1951. Soon thereafter, silicon transistors began to be made, and in fact, germanium has its own limitations. So silicon far surpassed germanium for transistor use, starting in the 1960s. The advantage of transistors is that they use far less power than vacuum tubes, and can be built much smaller. Thus, they are way more efficient in terms of energy and size. And led to the transistor radio in 1954, a palm-sized radio. There was no warm-up time. If you've ever encountered an old CRT-based television or tube-based radio, you know to wait several minutes for the vacuum tube filaments to heat up enough to boil off electrons so that the circuits can do their thing. With the space race, transistors began to be put into modules. And shrunken to microscopic size, leading to home digital electronics and computers. But that's for another episode. At this point in our chemical story, we have seen how the elements silicon and germanium led to an electronics revolution in the middle of the 20th century, and chemists were central to that development. All these semiconductors are practical materials whose value lies in how their material properties can be put to use. This is the heart of materials chemistry. So, why did I pick the name Fab Four for the title of this episode? 
because silicon and germanium are, like carbon at the top of the periodic table column, called group four elements, often having a valence of four. In fact, diamond itself can be considered a semiconductor, but the gap between the electron band with the electrons and the orbital band with no electrons is very large. So you have to put a lot of energy into a diamond to jump those electrons up to the empty band and make it start to conduct electricity. The next element down below germanium is the ancient metal tin. As a metal, it isn't a semiconductor, except when it's not a metal. In cold temperatures, metallic tin can change to another allotrope, a different molecular structure of the same element, which is a semiconductor in a gray, powdery form, though it has no real practical use. The conversion of metallic to semiconducting tin is called tin pest. So even tin can have semiconductor properties. In our next episode, we move to the commercialization of hormone pills and the golden age of antibiotics. Until then, brave the elements. Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast. 